again, we welcome Jacob Taggart with us this evening, and we'll ask Jacob to come now. Please, Jacob. Okay, the scripture reading this evening is continuing from this morning's sermon. So, Psalm 107, verses 33 to 43. Psalm 107, verse 33 to 43. I'll be reading from the King James. He turneth rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness, for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water, and dry ground into water springs. And there he makes the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation. And sow the fields, and plant vineyards, which may yield fruits of increase. He blesses them also, so that they are multiplied greatly, and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. Again, they are minished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon princes and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Father God, once more we come just ever thankful that we are ever able to come into the presence of you, O oh God. Not once more because of anything good that we have done, but because of Christ the righteous. Lord, I pray that in a land that calls good evil and evil good, that this congregation and its people and the Christians in this land and throughout the world, Lord, would be like a city on a hill, like a lamp not meant to be covered, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would work in our hearts, that we would reject evil and praise good, that we would meditate upon and seek out all things that are virtuous, excellent, wonderful and good, beautiful. Meditate upon these things. 
and praise them. Let us not be like the wicked who delight in sin. Let us not be like the the dog that returns to its vomit or the sow that wallows in the mud. Rather, let us put on Christ, His righteousness, and live accordingly. Lord, we come to You asking for the salvation of our souls, the salvation of our children's souls, Lord. Help us to teach them in the ways of righteousness, creating a community geared towards upbringing people in the ways of, your, of the Lord, O oh God, teaching us in what is good and righteous. Lord, I pray for wisdom in the leaders of this church, that they would have your guidance uh, when it comes to any building projects, Lord, whether it's the, the roof or heating or cooling of the church, Lord, all of these things, we pray for your guidance that they would do these with your glory in mind. I pray for those who are unwell in the church, whether here tonight or not, that your spirit would comfort them, that you would guide them in all truth, that they would hold fast to you, Lord, as their rock and foundation. Lord, I pray that you would provide for them. For we know that Christ came as a healer. And you are a God who works wonderfully, who is able to heal the sick, as you raise Christ from the dead, Lord. And so we pray for healing. We pray for your provision and care, Lord, and comfort. We pray for pacemakers as they are needed. For those who are dealing with cancer, Lord, that you would soothe them, comfort them with your peace. Lord, fill us all with your peace and an overwhelming sense of the joy that we have in your kingdom, Lord. Again, be with us now. May we live our lives always in light of who you are. God, in whom there is no darkness, help us to imitate you in all of these things, we pray. Amen. Again, we welcome Jacob this evening and pray the Lord's blessing as you open the word to us, brother. Good evening, church. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So ends this psalm, and that is how I started my sermon this morning, with a focus on chesed the loving kindness of God.
sometimes translated as the steadfast love of God, or his goodness, mercy, unfailing or even un or even faithful love. And this evening we're going to continue our study of this word, chesed. After all, as Christians, we are called to wisdom. If you read the book of Proverbs, the wise are not only those who are contrasted against the fools, but wisdom is associated with righteousness. Fools, on the other hand, fall into all kinds of wickedness because of their naivety, their lack of discernment, and lack of understanding. So again, let us be wise. Heed the words of the psalmist here and continue pondering the loving deeds of our great Lord. Now earlier I suggested that because of his chesed, because of his steadfast love, we should freely come to seek the Lord in all of our times of trouble. He is the great deliverer, and he is the one in whom we have salvation. And likewise, because he is a God who acts according to this love, we should thank him for this. Praise him for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. This evening, though, as we go through the text, I want to draw out a specific paradoxical pattern that we see especially in the last portion of the psalm concerning God's love. Now, a paradox has a few different definitions, but really what I mean is the unexpected or the astonishing nature of God's love. And my hope this evening is that although from a human perspective, our situations and lives may be utterly hopeless, with God, all things are possible. And I don't mean that as a magic snake oil cure-all. I just mean that this world constantly pulls at us. Sin clings to us so strongly that we can be fooled into thinking that this is all that there is. But if you remember Abraham being so old that Paul and the author of Hebrews both refer to him as good as dead, if he acted according to what he saw with his eyes, if he relied on his mind and his knowledge, his reason, rationality, if he made appeals to empirical evidence, scientific claims about the body, and so on and so forth, he would have emphatically concluded that it was impossible for him to bear an heir at his age with his wife being at her age, let alone have so many offspring that they would rival the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And yet Abraham believed. I told Mr. Sinclair this morning that I was so thrilled that you've been going through Hebrews 11 and that great chapter on faith, because that makes all of the difference, doesn't it? Contrary to all sense, Abraham believed. And lo and behold, a child was born. 
But can you imagine that just when you've received that child of promise, of promise, you are asked to give him up as a sacrifice? Would your faith still hold strong? Could you wield that blade against your own flesh and blood? Knowing that death is death, it is the end of life. That is according to the human perception. But by faith, that's not what Abraham believed. For he knew that God had promised that through Isaac, a whole nation would come. So Hebrews says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This is the kind of faith that I want to kindle within each of us here tonight. A faith that sees past the short-sightedness of this world and this life and looks instead to the truth of a God above, filled with chesed, unfailing love for his people. A God who will fulfill his promises and is with us and working in us even now because of the work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the saints. Let's take a look, a closer look at our text. This morning, in the first 32 verses, we talked about there were four groups. They all experienced some sort of trouble or distress. They cried to the Lord in their distress, and he delivered them. Therefore, the psalmist calls them to praise and thank God. But in the last 10 verses, that pattern is broken. Instead, the psalm focuses on and emphasizes the actions of the Lord in blessing one group of people while at the same time cursing another. As he tears down the wicked, he raises up the needy and the lowly. Out of bitterness with our human perspective, you can often hear people say things like, the rich, they just get richer, and the poor, they get poorer. In a sense, we should be saddened by all injustice in the world. Not that being wealthy is a sin, but how we accumulate that wealth does matter, and what we do with it matters. What has the memory verse from Micah been telling us? O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Yes, justice is important. It's a vital attribute of our God, and is His people. And as His people are, we are called to care about these things. But we need to view the world with the lens revealed by the Scriptures, and not in humanly terms. There is a God above who cares about justice. God is above, watching over all and weighing every decision in the hearts of men. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Verse 34 tells us that it is because of the wickedness of those who are dwelling in a certain place that God makes it a barren wasteland. So in his judgment against them, he inverts the whole ecology, the whole geography of the land. Rivers and springs become desert, wilderness, and dry ground. What once was a fruitful land becomes barren 
and inhospitable. Such is the fruit of the toil of the wicked. Yeah, they may do this and that and the other thing and may appear to have a degree of success in them. By worldly standards, they may be and often do become wealthy. But they are trees with rotten roots. When the east wind of the Lord blows, they will fall without ever having produced any fruit. I want to drive home this point, not because it's hard to see or hard to understand, but because in our day-to-day lives we can become deceived by the ways of the world. We can see the wicked prospering and be tempted to join them, to compromise our faith, to take the easier road. The writer of Psalm 73 felt such a temptation. Um, I hope you will please forgive the short detour, detour, but if you could turn with me to Psalm 73, I really want us to have the proper perspective on these things. Psalm 73, I believe, is page 644 in the Pew Bibles. There, the psalmist had almost stumbled. His feet had almost slipped, in verse 2 it says. Why? Verse 3, because he envied the foolish. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. They appear healthy and strong, hardly struggling through life. Those who commit themselves to a life of sin appeared to the writer as if they were not experiencing any of the troubles that are common to man. Though they are proud, where is God's judgment? Although they are violent, where is the justice? They have everything they desire, even though their speech is arrogant and wicked. Verse 12, in their comfortable lives, they don't only forget God, they diminish Him. They sin and see no immediate punishment and think themselves secure. They say, how doth God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? All of this causes great turmoil for the psalmist because he's been struggling with the toils of the righteous and suffering in various ways. And yet the ungodly prosper in the world and increase in riches. Verse 13, he declares how he has wasted his life pursuing holiness without reward. That is what he's starting to think. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. But in verse 17, there is a turn, a change of heart, a revelation of knowledge and insight. After many contemplations, the psalmist comes to the sanctuary of God and finally... He understands. His eyes become opened. He sees that God has set the wicked on slippery slopes. They shall be cast down into destruction. In a moment, everything 
that they trusted is gone. They are utterly consumed with terrors. Verse 20. This morning I quoted Psalm 78 where God, while judging the Israelites, he remembers that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and comes not again. Well, verse 20 here in Psalm 73 gives an equally sobering thought. And again, let these vivid images control your life, not in the sense of paralyzing you into fear or terror. No, we know that perfect love casts out all fear. And we know that we have a God with perfect love. But it should stir you, knowing that life is so fleeting. If you are living in wickedness and sin, to wake up. The lives of the wicked, as verse 20 says, are no more than like a dream when one awakens. At night we can dream such vivid dreams that can feel like reality. But in the morning, for the most part, a minute passes and it's gone. It's hardly nothing more than a memory. By midday we've all but forgotten it. Such are the lives of the wicked. When the psalmist realizes this, he feels like a fool, like a brute beast, a senseless beast. For he remembers who God is, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My heart and my flesh, my flesh and my heart fails. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord our God is our portion forever and ever. Everlasting life. In Him, we live on. In Him, none of the things of this earth can compare. In His presence, there is fullness of joy at His right hand. Pleasures forevermore. Let us return to Psalm 107. There, according to God's will, the wicked, they shall receive their due reward. They sowed sin and reaped destruction. Page 665 and 666. But after verse 34, God moves in what we called this morning mysterious ways. Water becomes desert as a punishment. But then desert becomes life. Verses 34 and 35, the wilderness and the dry ground become springs of water. The wicked receive their due, but just as earlier in the psalm, those who are hungry and without a city are able to come and build a city by these waters. Or rather, since it really is not a passive thing, God brings them to this place. He is the one that turns a desert into an oasis.
There they are able to sow their fields, plant vineyards, bear fruit under his blessings. They multiply and increase in numbers. All under his care. But then in verse 39 again, they become brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. If I'm being honest, I do not know if this is that same group who was hungry and built that city, and it is from them that their own princes or noblemen forgot God and started oppressing these people. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. You read the book of Judges, Kings, Chronicles, you can see how easily one generation forgets God. Or, on the other hand, are these proud princes and nobles, they come from somewhere else and they just they start oppressing them. I do not know, but either way, God's response is the same. Just as he judged the last group of wickedness, he also judges these oppressors and causes them to wander in the wilderness. Those who are high are brought low. But not only that, verse 41 shows that God also goes on then to set the poor and needy on high, lifting them up out of their affliction, multiplying their numbers as a blessing to them. It's a tragedy today that this world sees children as a burden. I mean, as far as I know, the scriptures only always see them as a blessing from God. May God renew the hearts of this nation. Now the upright, verse 42, they shall see these divine interventions, these inversions in the courses of human history, where the proud are brought low and the humble are lifted up, The upright shall see these things and rejoice. And all the wicked can do at that point is close their mouths. For who has an answer against God and his judgments? Job certainly didn't. Are they not right and just in all their ways? Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Let us continue pondering these things, pondering God's astonishing love. Truly God's ways are just and right. He takes the weak and makes them strong. The proud he removes from their posts. And we see this throughout the scriptures too. Isn't that the heart of the Beatitudes? Matthew 5, verses 2 through 8, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He even delivers and redeems us from the consequences of our own sins through the death 
on a cross. Christ becomes the greatest inversion of expectations. The greatest example of God's paradoxical love is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he shall not put out. A baby, a child born in a manger. Gentle and lowly in heart. All of these betray the human expectations for a king, especially in that time period. Christ, though truly a king, lived as a servant. He went to fishermen and tax collectors to build his kingdom rather than the ruling Jewish class. He invited and welcomed prostitutes, sinners, children. In his midst, Emmanuel, this is God with us. The very word of God came into this world as a tiny baby, experiencing all of the pains and sorrows of this life on our behalf. But it wasn't just how he came. It wasn't just how he lived. For who could have guessed that the means of God redeeming the earth was through the death of God's own anointed one, the death of his Messiah. The Israelites certainly didn't expect that. They were expecting a king delivering them powerfully. And indeed, Christ did just that. But it wasn't how they expected or even how they wanted. Indeed, many of them did not even recognize him when he was before the very eyes. Yet by Christ's death, death itself was defeated. That's a paradox. By Christ's death, we live. Our sins are dead in Christ. We have been made alive in Christ because he was raised. And this is the foolishness of the gospel. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. After all, Paul whose own conversion story inverts all expectations in of itself. He was a persecutor of the Christian church before becoming the church's greatest missionary. This Paul, who preached the gospel not with eloquent wisdom, says instead something very interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, I invite you to turn with me there if you are able. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 down to 31 verse 31 page 1185 1185 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 down to verse 31 since this truly captures what God has been doing in all of these strange mysterious instances of inverting the expectations of the world and how this continues even in a New Testament context. Verse 18, I'll be reading again from the King James. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, and to the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. This is one of the reasons why he's doing what he's doing to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, to confound the mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised. Hath God chosen? Yeah, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? Why is this that no flesh should glory in his presence? But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I want to especially highlight verses 25, 26, and 31 there. For the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. Indeed, God oftentimes uses men specifically in their weaknesses for the specific purpose of giving God the greater glory. Did God choose a young, recently married couple to bear offspring from which God would make the nation of Israel? Or did he choose Abraham and Sarah? Did God love the firstborn because of his honor? Or did he love Jacob rather than Esau? When God wanted a prophet to speak his words and lead his people did he choose the most eloquent or Moses who himself did not understand or trust God enough at that time to be his mouthpiece 
and profit without the aid of his brother. What about Gideon and his army, as Mr. Sinclair reminded us? An army of 32,000 able-bodied, strong men. God reduced it to a mere 300 men, all to his glory, to demonstrate his power and strength and his might, and that he was their deliverer. David, merely a shepherd boy, by faith takes down Goliath. It is he who becomes the king whose line would bear Christ, even though it was Saul who had the human appearance of a king. He was head and shoulders above the rest, it says. They wanted him to be king. But that was a disaster. No, it was David. And as the author of Hebrews says, time would fail me to tell of others, though there are countless more examples. Time and time again, God acts in marvelous ways. And why is that? Verse 31. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That is the reason, brothers and sisters. All glory be to Christ. Let him who boasts not boast in himself, as we sang just now. In his own wisdom, strength, or righteousness, none of these things we can boast in. All of these are from the Lord. But let us, one and all, boast in him. My prayer is that everyone would leave here tonight knowing that our God, the God of the Bible, the same almighty God who covenanted with Israel thousands of years ago, brought them out of Egypt, who endured their grumblings and how they whored after other nations and idols. He endured all of this. The same like, this, this is the same Lord who likewise brought them into and then out of Babylonian captivity. This God over history, God of God, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, this is the God that we worship. This very evening we worship that same God. The last passage that I'm going to quote tonight from Exodus 34, chapter, verse 6 and 7, where God reveals who he is. He passes by in front of Moses, revealing his nature. This is our God. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness. Now that's that word again, chesed, okay? Abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy, again, chesed, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. This is our God today. As he was in the time of Exodus, as God passed before Moses and revealed his name, his very character. All glory be to God. 